All right. So this, uh, the scripture reading this morning comes from Genesis uh, chapter 9, uh, verse 31, through Genesis uh, chapter 30, verse 24. It is printed on your bulletin if you'd like to follow along, I believe, starting on page 5. All right. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, It is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Because the Lord has heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Again she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Now at last my husband will become attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. So she named him Levi. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, This time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. So she said to Jacob, Give me children or I'll die. Jacob became angry with her and said, Am I in the place of God who has kept you from having children? Then she said, Here is Bilhah, my servant. Sleep with her so that she can bear children for me, and I too can build a family through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife. Jacob slept with her, and she became pregnant and bore him a son. Then Rachel said, God has vindicated me. He has listened to my plea and given me a son. Because of this, she named him Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, I have had a great struggle with my sister, and I have won. So she named him Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had stopped having children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. Then Leah said, what good fortune. So she named him Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. Then Leah said, how happy I am. The women will call me happy. So she named him Asher. During wheat harvest, Reuben went out into the fields and found some mandrake plants, which he brought to his mother Leah. Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, wasn't it enough that you took away my husband? Will you take my son's mandrakes too? Very well, Rachel said. He can sleep with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. So when Jacob came in from the fields that evening, Leah went out to meet him. You must sleep with me, she said. I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he slept with her that night. God listened to Leah and she became pregnant and bore Jacob a fifth son. Then Leah said, God has rewarded me for giving my servant to my husband. So she named him Issachar. Leah conceived again and bore Jacob his sixth son. Then Leah said, God has presented me with a precious gift. This time my husband will treat me with honor because I have borne him six sons. So she named him Zebulun. Some time later, she gave birth to a daughter and named her Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel. He listened to her and enabled her to conceive. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son and said, God has taken away my disgrace. She named him Joseph and said, may the Lord add to me another son. Let's pray together. God, we come to you right now as your broken people. You know, you know, you know 
how much our lives scattered across this room, how much our lives are filled with pain, with grief, with fear, with loss, with confusion, with sin, addiction, wanderings. God, we need you. And we need you even more than we know that we need you. And so we're asking for you to come and send your Holy Spirit into this place and speak to our hearts by your word. We ask for nothing less than that because we need your presence, the comfort of your presence, the conviction of your presence, and most of all, the Christ of your presence. Help us to see Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I wonder which... TV family, which TV family best depicts the family that you grew up or maybe the one that you always wish you had? Is it the Bradys? Yeah, we're going way back. The Bradys or maybe the Jeffersons or the Cleavers? Or is it the Pearsons from This Is Us, if that's your show? The Pritchetts from Modern Family? Maybe that sounds close. The Bankses from The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, the Huangs from Fresh Off the Boat, or maybe it's the Gilmore Girls. If it's the Sopranos, don't tell us anything more. (laughs) Some of you maybe grew up thinking that your family looked like, sounded like the Crawleys in Downtown Abbey, but now growing up, you're looking back and you realize you look more like the Munsters or the Adams Family. Not what you thought you were growing up amidst. What was Jacob's family like? Maybe something close to the Simpsons or the Bundys. As Joyce Baldwin, the commentator, commented on this passage, she said it pointed to Jacob's stormy home life. I wonder how many of us might describe our families in that way. What's Jacob's families like? The chosen family of God? God's family? That's what we're looking at today. What was his family like? While studying this passage this past week, I wrote these words at the top of my notes. It's actually right here. So much pain and sadness. See, Jacob is married now to not one, but two women who were also sisters, Leah and Rachel. Long story. We heard about it last week. And Leah, Jacob's first wife and the older of the two sisters, was starving for her husband's affection. Leah was an unwanted wife. Jacob was actually tricked into marrying her. The truth is, he never wanted her. And she knew that, and he basically reminded her every day. Jacob loved Rachel more. Verse 31 tells us that Leah was unloved. In fact, that word literally can be translated hated. Leah was despised. But God saw Leah. Beloved, when no one else sees you, God sees you, sees your pain, sees your misery. 
he had compassion on Leah, enabled her to have children, which of course in that time meant having dignity and value in Jacob's household. She had four sons, and each of the names, if we pay attention, each of the names she gave to these boys spoke of the mixture that she felt of gratitude to God and on the other hand, pain and loss and a continuing cry for her husband's love. Reuben, the oldest child, that means see. She said, the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. Simeon means one who hears. She says, because the Lord heard that I am not loved. Maybe referring to her quiet cries alone at night. He heard Leah, she said, and he gave this one too. Third son, Levi, that means attached, join closely. Because she says, now at last my husband will become attached to me. Fourth son, Judah, this one means praise. Leah says, this time I will praise the Lord. You can just hear it. Even every single one of those names of her children that she gave them speaks to just how desperate she was. It's not uncommon, even in our day, maybe even in our own lives, the ways in which children can sometimes be used as a way to win someone's love or affection or just to keep a family together. Or maybe you're not married, you don't have children. The ways in which people oftentimes, maybe you today, live with a deep, pained longing for love and acceptance. Beloved, you need to hear God say to you, as Leah heard him say to her, God sees you. God hears you. God attaches himself to you in Jesus. God loves you. While all this was going on with Leah, you might have thought that Rachel was just living her best life. She was, after all, the the wanted wife, the prettier one, the loved one. But no, A spouse's affection cannot save you. Your looks cannot save you. Rachel was miserable too. We're told in chapter 30, verse 1, that while Leah began bearing children, Rachel wasn't able to bear any of her own, and she became jealous of her sister. Jealous. Jealousy is the worst I don't know if you bear jealousy in your heart today, if any jealousy is lurking in your life today for any number of reasons. Jealousy makes your heart small. It robs you of all joy, contentment in life. It makes you blind to the blessings that you actually do have from God because you're looking past him to the things that you feel you don't have from God. Jealousy is just sheer madness. It makes even millionaires feel penniless. It makes people that seem to have everything feel like they have nothing. Jealousy poisons our relationships. It even makes you root for other people's failure, even those you love. 
I know well all of these things and more because I struggle with jealousy. Maybe you do too, the envy of our hearts. But it's also important to notice that Rachel's jealousy was born of deep, unrelenting grief. Because so often it is born of deep, unrelenting grief. Very often underneath the jealousy, underneath the anger, underneath the blaming is actually an inconsolable sadness. Is this true of you? Whatever places of envy you detect in your life, that underneath it is actually something that's really tearful, weary, and just sad. Take a look. It takes some courage to look inside, doesn't it? Your sadness might be due to any number of losses and struggles, or it could actually perhaps be the same as Rachel's particular struggle, the struggle to get pregnant. In chapter 29, verse 31, we're told that Rachel remained childless. In chapter 30, verse 1, It says, Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children. And we hear her deep frustration, even desperation, when she lashes out at Jacob, give me children or I'll die. Because you know it does feel like a death sometimes, doesn't it? Can we pause for just a moment and talk about the pain of infertility? According to the CDC and the NIH, 10 to 15% of all women and about 20%, one in five, of women trying to get pregnant for the first time struggle with some form of infertility. It's a common struggle, one that's even shown up, of course, in our community. A pain, perhaps, that some of you are struggling with even quietly right now. Beyond the stats, which of course we can all look up at any time, this past week I asked a a few people in light of this passage about their personal experiences with this particular pain. They spoke about the sadness, about the fear, what if we can't have kids? The loss, especially when miscarriage is involved as it typically is. They spoke about the the pain of, of waiting As one person said, days and hours never felt so long as when we were trying over and over again to get pregnant. They also spoke of of the lurking feeling of shame. As one person put it, the feeling of helplessness and inadequacy is full of grief and shame. What's wrong with me? What did I do wrong? In chapter 30, verse 22, Rachel refers to her childlessness as disgrace. Of course, here she's referring primarily to the way that in her day, a woman's identity was fully bound up with her ability to bear children. Even today, though a different time and culture, it can still feel like that. Even in a city like D.C., shame, disgrace. And then there's the overwhelming experience of powerlessness. 
Uh, one person shared with me that it, this was the first time when they struggled with infertility, the first time I realized that my body would not do exactly what I expected of it, and simultaneously the first time I realized I truly was not in control. Someone else said something didn't work the way it was supposed to. We didn't know why, and we couldn't fix it. One husband spoke of the struggle of knowing how to support his wife, what to say, what to do, even as the pain was a joint one, a shared one, both members of the couple. Each of their struggles were unique, he explained. It was hard to, as much as he wanted to help, his wife experienced a pain of her own that wouldn't, he just knew he wouldn't be able to understand so unique was their pain to each of them. Jacob, too, in this story, you might have noticed, seemed to struggle to understand Rachel's grief. Rachel demands, give me children or I'll die again, because sometimes it really does feel like a death, doesn't it? But instead of understanding that Rachel was speaking out of pain, Jacob gets defensive. You saw that, right? He just doesn't even know how to care for her. Verse 2 says, Jacob became angry with her angry with his broken-hearted wife. He avoids responsibility. He even appears to blame God. You know in those moments of vulnerability when someone perhaps lashes out at you, but you know or maybe you don't know it's actually out of pain and woundedness, one of the things that we can be praying for is that God gives us the ability not to react out of anger when someone hurts you because they themselves are acting out of hurt. Can we hang in there, listen, love, and maybe even bear some of that pain? But maybe we can be sympathetic to the position that Jacob is in. Maybe his retort, am I in the place of God? In other words, I'm not God. What can I do? Was actually a misdirected but honest expression of powerlessness, helplessness. One husband explained, before this happened to us, I had no idea what it felt like as a husband to be rendered so powerless. It was like my wife had a wound that for the first time I could not help heal. It was devastating to be rendered so powerless. And so to be fair, grief of this kind is more than what one person, even one spouse, can carry and support alone. I hope that's where the Christian community can come in, where, where the church family can actually provide support. As someone said to me also, I wish I had been more open with others at the time during this season of struggle. Because so many couples suffer understandably in secrecy and in silence. We want to be there for you, bearing the wounds and the pain and the frustration together with you as best as we can to weep with you and to walk with you. Because it's a common struggle. It's a struggle everywhere dotted throughout our pews. Beloved, we love you. This passage isn't teaching us that God will always give you the desires of your heart. But it does teach us that God will always be near to you in your struggle. I love the fact that the Bible talks even candidly about a struggle like this. It's right here in God's inspired word, bringing near to us the eyes and the heart of God 
where he tells us, through this story, I haven't forgotten you. I see your tears, and I am with you. God is not blind, deaf, or unfeeling to your pain. The Lord sees your misery, even as he saw Leah and Rachel. The Lord hears your cry. God is amazingly compassionate towards Rachel and Jacob, to Leah too. But things, as the story progresses along, things actually got messier, you might have noticed. It's almost like they engaged then in an an arms race, a baby race. Rachel, in verse 3, arranges for Jacob to sleep with her servant, Bilhah, as sort of a surrogate mother. And this was a common practice culturally in the ancient Near East, but it was, let's say, problematic for her since the servant woman was forced to play this role, not by her choice. Nevertheless, Bilhah had two sons that would have counted as Rachel's. Dan, which means vindicated, Rachel says, because God has vindicated me, he has listened to my plea. And Naphtali, which means my struggle, she said, because I have had a great struggle with my sister and I have won. The battle continues. Then Leah, not to be outdone, gave her servant woman Zilpah to Jacob as a surrogate mom. And Zilpah had two sons that counted as Leah's. Gad, which means good fortune. Asher, which means happy. And if you're losing track, don't worry. We're going to count them all up in just a second. Right? Then things get really funky. Verse 14 tells us that there was a time some years later when Reuben, remember that's Leah's oldest son, the firstborn, went out to the fields and he brings back to his mom some mandrake plants. These are these large-leafed, sort of carrot-like rooted plants that were common in those days. Rachel asks if she can have some of those mandrakes Because apparently they boost fertility. And Leah gets all real housewives of Atlanta on her sister here. I mean, right? She says, you took my man, you're going to take my mandrakes too. Right? That's what she says. And then Rachel decides to bargain with her sister. Well, you can sleep with Jacob in return for some of those mandrakes. And so Jacob comes home later that night, finds out that wife number put two put him on Facebook Marketplace, apparently. Leah says, deal, goes to Jacob, says, I've hired you. You must now sleep with me. Remember, this is her own husband she's talking to. Jacob says, okay, right? I mean, you ever find yourself turning, to every around, turning everyone around you into a mere transaction? Desperation can do that. People aren't people anymore. Everyone's just a piece of your plan. Amazingly, verse 17 says, God listened to Leah. It's actually amazing. No rebuke, despite her scheming. You know, sometimes God gives you the desire of your heart and answers your prayers. Not because you deserve it. Not because your motives were straight, but simply because of his grace. You think it's because you did something right, but God is just 
inexplicably generous sometimes. So Leah has a fifth son. Issachar means reward because she, in her calculations, thinks God has rewarded her for all her indiscretions. Then a sixth, Zebulun, which means honor, and then sometimes later a precious daughter named Dinah. That's Leah. What about Rachel? Well, in verse 22, we're told, finally, finally, she has a child of her own. God remembered Rachel, we're told. He listened to her and enabled her to conceive. Sister, brother, God remembers you. God has not forgotten you. No no matter how long the waiting has been, he has not forgotten you. He listens to you. He has not turned a deaf ear toward you. Rachel had a son. She named him Joseph. And after all those years and all those tears, you can imagine just how precious and beloved Joseph was. He eventually became mom and dad's favorite If you're familiar with the stories, you may recall the story of Joseph and his coat of many colors. So much did his parents cherish him in their hearts, understandably. Years later, Rachel will have one more son, Benjamin, bringing the total number of children in Jacob's household to 13, sister Dinah, and 12 sons. Okay. Been looking at a couple lessons we can draw out here and there, but just to close with three major lessons that we can take away with us. Three big lessons. Number one, God's plans and promises are trustworthy and sure. What's the crucial background to today's story? The crucial background. It's the promise that God made back in chapter 28. When he shows up in a dream before Jacob, You know, the one with that big staircase coming down from heaven. And he says to Jacob, promises him, I am the Lord. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. And one of the main reasons why today's story was written was to bear witness to the fact that God was indeed fulfilling his promise. He was doing it. This promise of descendants, offspring, that would be a blessing to the world. Jacob had 12 sons, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and eventually Benjamin. Each of these sons would become the head and namesake of the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob is finally becoming the patriarch that God had promised he'd be. He's keeping his promise. And of course, it was a bumpy ride getting there, wasn't it? Despite human sin, despite twisted motives, despite relational conflict, God's purposes in your life cannot be thwarted. As the old saying goes, God can draw straight lines with crooked sticks. He loves doing it that way. He did it in Jacob's life. He does it in ours too. When your body fails you, when people fail you, when you fail you, God never fails you. 
He shows himself to be faithful. He shows himself to be a promise-keeping God. So we can trust him. We can abide in him. We can follow him. Now, ultimately, this passage looks beyond itself. The promise that God ultimately keeps is the promise to give us Jesus. Which brings us to the second point, the second lesson. Christ alone satisfies our deepest aches and longings. You might have noticed that this story actually ends not on a note of triumph, but it actually ends with a note of restlessness and even dissatisfaction. In Leah's case, sadly, even after all these years, we find that she's still tending to her broken heart. After Zebulun was born in verse 20, she says, well, maybe, maybe, maybe this time, maybe this time my husband will treat me with honor. Even the blessed bearing of many children, even the passage of much time, couldn't heal her marriage or her heart. And in Rachel's case, in verse 22, she finally has her child. And immediately, this is the words on her lips, may the Lord add to me another son. Immediately, she's looking for the next one. The final word in this passage, in this story, in the original Hebrew text, is another. Oh, the continued longings, the continued restlessness. This passage, in fact, invites us to keep looking together with Rachel, together with these women, to keep looking and looking, inviting us to look for another son. The ultimate son, the final son, Jesus, the only one who can truly, deeply, finally satisfy our deepest aches and longings. Someone says, where's Jesus in this passage? Tell me, preacher. You remember Judah, Leah's fourth son? Later on, towards the end of this story, the end of Jacob's life in Genesis chapter 49, Jacob blesses each of his sons. When he gets to Judah, do you know what he says? A king is going to come from you. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. The scepter, the royal scepter, shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. It's from Judah that the Messiah would one day arrive. See, this passage whispers to Leah with all of her heartache and restlessness. It whispers to Leah. This passage whispers to Rachel. It even whispers to us, the true son is coming. The true son has finally come. I don't know what aches and longings you're finding today on your own hearts. Maybe it's the ache for significance because you feel like you're being overlooked. Maybe it's the ache for love because you don't know why you're still all alone. Maybe it's freedom from shame because you feel like you wear it like a blanket every day. Maybe it's just longing for relief 
or healing for your body, the aches, the longings. Do you know the true sun is coming? The true sun has come with healing in his wings. Will you go to him? Will you go to him with all your aches and, and pains? Used like Bilhah, we go to Jesus. Wounded, unloved, and abandoned like Leah, we go to Jesus. Desperate like Rachel, we go to Jesus. Overwhelmed and defenseless and helpless like Jacob, we go to Jesus. Will you go to Jesus, the lover of your souls, the groomsman, I mean, sorry, the bridegroom of your life, the true son, the only begotten given for you. As St. Augustine said so helpfully, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Jesus. Will you go to him? And speaking of that wild cast of characters that we encounter in this story, the final lesson, thirdly, God is near to broken families. I mean, what a mess this family this outrageous, wreckage-filled household with, with all of its pain, all of its jealousy, all of its anger, all of its competition and, and noise and, and chaos. Do you know what this is a picture of? The chosen family of God. Do you know what this is a picture of? Jesus' family. You know what's a picture of? You and me. Our families, real families in a fallen and broken world. I love what Joyce Baldwin says about the ending of this story, that it proves once again the grace of God chooses difficult and unpromising material. I mean, how do you like that, right? That, that, that the Bible looks at us, looks at our brokenness, looks at our sin, looks at our pain, and it's like, yeah, unpromising, right? I mean, not likely really to, in the world's eyes. Maybe, but in God's eyes, you're his treasured possession. And your family is a wondrous project of redemption. Listen, author Chad Bird writes about this. No family, however broken, however disfigured, however dysfunctional it might be, is beyond the pale of divine grace and redemption. No matter how bad it was for you growing up. And no matter how bad it gets, even now for you. Your family will never be beyond the reach of God's great love. Families wrecked by addiction or adultery, incarceration or neglect. Families that every day bear the secret, invisible gashes and wounds caused by sin and the brokenness of this world. you got to remember, family, God used this, Jacob's terribly broken family, to literally save the world. To bear one day the Messiah, Jesus. And so that also means whatever wrecked family you came from, as deep and enduring as the wounds from that family might continue to be, you got to know that those wounds can't wreck 
are powerless to wreck God's perfect purposes for you. Because don't forget, as it turns out, despised, rejected, wrecked Leah would one day be the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus himself, the Savior of the world. You never know. God is near to the sinner. God is near to the outcast, near to the brokenhearted, near to families with tear-stained couches. Beloved, that's good news because that means that God is near to me and you. Let's pray. Jesus, we look to you as the healer, the redeemer, the one who loves. And we come to you with all our sorrow, sadness, chaos, helplessness, Yes, even anger, jealousy, a sin of our hearts. We don't know what to do at all, with it all. We, what we do know is to bring it to you. You say come. So we bring it to you. All our fear and anxiety as well. Our lives are in your hands. Savior, Redeemer, Sovereign Lord. And so we come near to you. God of Jacob, Isaac, and Abraham. We come near to you. We bring ourselves to you. We bring our families to you. We bring our church to you. We bring our hurting friends, loved ones, and neighbors before the throne of grace where we can find help in our weakness, help in our time of need, help in Jesus. So minister to our hearts now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.